Dear Ron, I am writing to you regarding the status of the pending cases against you. I have been researching and have discovered a new test that is currently being used with great success in several areas of the United States. I am enclosing some literature for you to review concerning this test. The test, working from blood stains, pubic hair, and or the rape kit, it can be determined with certainty whether or not a person accused of a rape slash murder is in fact guilty. This test is exceedingly conclusive since it is based on the DNA structure of the cells of the human body. And it is a clearly known scientific fact that there are no two similar DNAs. The benefit of the test would be that it could conceivably clear you. The great danger of the test is that if there is any fact which I do not know which could point to your guilt, this test could conclusively establish your guilt and be very devastating to you. With that in mind, and after reviewing the literature, I want you to decide whether or not we should request this test. I will not file the motion without your written express demand, since the test is such that it will either clear you or convict you. After reviewing this literature, you should destroy both this literature and this letter. That was a letter from Ronald Trimboli's attorney, Carl Mallory, to Ronald. After receiving this letter, knowing full well the risks, with the prospect of a third trial upcoming, Ronald would nonetheless volunteer to have his DNA tested. And in perhaps the most devastating moment for Ronald's story of his innocence, both to the public eye and the judicial system, it would come back as a match. The logical question to ask is, if Ronald was guilty, if he had really killed Danielle, Renee, and John Bradley, why on earth would he possibly agree to take this test? As Ronald's daughter Lisa and her husband Mark recall, it wasn't as if Ronald had not been warned. Because Maloney told him if you even so much as spit inside that duplex, you shouldn't take this test. So Ron wanted to take the test because he thought this would be the end of it, you know, and yeah. they'd leave him alone and cut him loose. My father calls me and tells me that Ma Mallory had sent him some literature um, on DNA and he wanted to take the test and he wanted to know what my feelings were about it. I didn't know any more about DNA. He probably knew more about DNA than I did. So my response was, it's not my decision to make, Dad. It's your decision to make. And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I want to take it. I'm going to talk to Grandma in, in D.C. and, and Grandpa, and then uh, I'm pretty sure I'm taking this test because I didn't kill anybody and I didn't rape anybody. So I said, okay. And then we left it like that. And then when it came back to be him, we all really got silent because I think, honestly, we didn't understand why in the world he would even think about taking that test for any reason what? if he committed that crime. Yeah. And why is it coming back to be him? And how the hell could it come back to be him? But I do know that he was, he was completely floored that they're saying that that hit that's his DNA on the bedspread. He was floored. He couldn't, he couldn't believe it, couldn't explain it. According to numerous media reports, 
The company that did the DNA test, Life Codes, declared that the likelihood of a random match to this DNA was 54.9 billion to one. Or was it? It's a human instinct to believe this the second you hear it. I'll be honest, I did. It's because we have the benefit of decades of DNA matches becoming an accepted part of science. But remember, DNA was brand new at the time. And like any brand new science, it didn't come out fully formed. DNA testing in the 1980s was the Wild West. Going into Ronald's third trial, a new attorney entered the picture, Bill Lane. Bill read the same headlines, but Bill wasn't so sure it was a match. In fact, Bill would argue, that same test might actually clear Ronald Tromboli. I met Bill in his office in Fort Worth, Texas. Well, I was an active criminal defense lawyer and the Trimboli case had been tried twice already. And so it was quite the talk of the courthouse, talk of the town community. Uh, the first trial ended in a mistrial because of jury misconduct. The second one ended up in a mistrial as a result of the jury just not able to reach a verdict. And then as a result of that, the lawyers that Ron had at that time thought it'd be a good idea to do this new test called DNA. <laughs> and so uh, they asked the state to do it. We've learned a lot of lessons from since then, but they asked the state to do it, which they did. And the, the results came back from life codes is one in 54 billion, 900 million chances of a likely match. In other words, there's nobody that's ever lived on the earth that would match the DNA profile. So uh, they, the lawyer, original lawyers decided they didn't want to try the case again. I, I'm sure in light of those kind of results from life codes. And uh, one of the judges approaches me and I said, why not? I like the odds. You either win big or you lose big. Bill not only wasn't intimidated by the reported numbers, the numbers actually made him skeptical. So uh, to me, number one, when, when you read that number or hear that number, when there's only been, at, I think that point in time, there had been less than two billion people that had ever inhabited the earth. And you come in with a number from a company in New York that says one in 54 billion, 900 million. The number in and of itself is so big that it made it preposterous to me. And I thought that I would have an easy time explaining that to a jury. And at the end of the day, we talked to, the, to most of the jurors and uh, it, it turns out that the DNA was not the deciding factor in the case. We wanted to talk to the jury too. And so we found juror John Skiles. Uh, my name is John Skiles. Uh, I was uh, a juror on the third trial John was remarkably young to be a juror on triple murder. Well, to be honest with you, at that time, I was, uh, what, I guess 18, 19? Well, I can't, I can't remember, it's been so many years ago now. All I know is I got a jury summons. I went to the jury summons and then I didn't even know it was a murder trial until I got there and started filling out questionnaires and that kind of stuff. And uh, of course, at that time, and, uh, and of course, I still think that today, this day, I think one of the reasons I got picked was because at that time in my life, I didn't watch a lot of news. I didn't read, read read a lot of newspapers. So I really didn't really keep up with everything that was going on, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, when they asked you questions, do you have any preconceived notions? Honestly, I didn't. I think it's probably one of the reasons why they picked me. Because I was really shocked when they did pick me. We had uh, jurors all the way up there, you know, their late 50s, early 60s. and. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of things that, uh, you know, at that time, because I know DNA was, you know, introduced and that was in its 
I'd say in, probably in its infancy, and nobody really knew really anything about that as far as the jurors. I mean, when you're just learning about something that's brand new technology, and you hear these experts and they say, oh, it's a billion to one, you know, blah, 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 you know, and you start thinking, well, damn, you know, that's pretty compelling, you know. Not too many people, relatively speaking, knew anything about DNA at all, including lawyers. That's why Bill took it upon himself to become as much of an expert as he could in this emerging science. It was a novel uh, case from the standpoint of the second was a mistrial for a jury's inability to reach a conclusion. They didn't have enough evidence. And so from that standpoint, I was interested in it because when they introduced this DNA testimony, I thought, well, you know, uh, I don't know much about this DNA stuff, but you know, if that's all they're hanging their hat on, let's see what we can do with that. And I said, <clears throat> one of the things you're going to have to agree to do with me on this case is let is give me the ability to go to these these different labs and not only my labs but their labs and just you know DNA 101. Now of course it hadn't been used in courtrooms prior to this, so it was just it was new to everybody and and the state was right on my heels and going to these places too. So we all had to learn a lot. Most lawyers are lawyers because they couldn't do science and they couldn't do science or biology. So I didn't know the first thing about DNA, um, but spent almost a year in preparation of this case. And, and the funny thing is, is this was not the case that we initially used the DNA on. Uh, the state and I agreed. Alan Levy, who was the uh, first assistant to the DA's office at the time, uh, had never tried one either. Obviously neither one of us had tried one. And so we found another case where we, we thought we could get some DNA evidence and the state ran the DNA. And we um, prepared that case and tried that case first in order just to see how the experts were gonna be handled in front of a jury, in front of the court, what you know, if there weren't any rules of evidence that apply to this. It was the old Fry test at the time we tried it. And so, you know, it was the learning experience for us to see how we could use this case in Tremboli, not only them prosecuting it, but me defending it, was the lessons we learned from the, from the Kelly case. It turns out the Kelly case ended up being the law of the land on the admissibility of novel scientific evidence when it comes to DNA. So uh, we didn't know when we were trying it, but that's, that's what it ended up being. Bill is referring to Barry Dean Kelly. Bill represented Barry Dean Kelly when he was accused of a rape slash murder in the first trial ever to use DNA in Tarrant County, shortly before Ronald's third trial. How did Bill learn about DNA enough to be able to defend people who were tried utilizing DNA results? I learned about it just the old fashioned way. I went to school, I got to go to all these labs and to my labs, I told them treat me like a kindergartner. Take me from step one, all the, you know, from chicken to chicken soup. I, I had to know everything there was about this and literally spent a year doing that with different labs. I, there's, there was two different types of DNA that were used. One was RFLP and one was PCR. I didn't even know what those were when I got started and all this. So I really had to just get back to basics and learn everything about it. And then from there, try to start figuring out how to attack this. As it turns out, the way we attacked it uh, was in large part because of the way the state put it on. The, the witness that they used, their, their primary witness in the case against Ron, was a guy named Tom Katsky from the Houston uh, area, had his own, you know, everybody was popping up these DNA labs. My biggest concern with all of this was, is if you had enough money, you could get the results you wanted. And my, you know, my soapbox of this all the time, the whole time I've been involved in it, is get government oversight on it, get regulations on it. Don't let just anybody with a 
you know, a chemistry set, start doing these tests and giving their opinions. It needs to be regulations, it needs to be protocols that are peer reviewed. And it wasn't at that time. Life Codes just put together a deal and they were doing mostly uh, family, you know, identification for paternity testing. And, uh, and they got off into this other forensic area. And literally uh, their protocols were, were flawed. Uh, the way they did this test was flawed. We will get into exactly how Bill argues the test was flawed when we reach the DNA testimony portion of the trial. Bill met his new client, Ronald Trimboli, while he was imprisoned, and Ronald made a strong impression. Uh, I met him in the holdover in Tarrant County, introduced myself as his new lawyers. Um, Ron, from the very, very first day, professed his innocence. Um, you know, lawyers are not supposed to give personal opinions or, or develop personal opinions on these things, but I thought he was innocent too. I really do. Bill seemed to like Ronald personally and sincerely believe in his innocence, but he also assessed him as a potential risk to himself on the stand. He, he was, but he was, he was a bit of a uh, boastful flam, flim flam guy, is, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, New York guy that, you know, talked every bit the New York language and, uh, he was just, he was colorful. He really was. Uh, but he he was sure dead set in his innocence. And he had kind of painted himself into a corner where we couldn't use him on the stand. There's no way we could put him on the stand because um, you didn't ever know what he was going to say. <laughs> I mean, I knew he was going to say he didn't do these, but, but besides that, I don't know what else he would have said. Mark and Lisa were conflicted about Bill's choice not to put Ronald on the stand because the jurors never got to know him. I think it wasn't a good idea to not put him on the stand. I think they should have put him on the stand. They should have. I don't think they were really where Bill is saying that they were worried about him. I think they were really worried about how the, the prosecutors would come at him and what they were asking him and then how he would respond to that. But I think he would have been a great person to speak for himself. And I think he would have he would have shown the jury, you know, if they could have heard his voice, you know, and a little more talking because he had, he was a soft-spoken man. He wasn't, you know, a rough speaking man. He was a very soft-spoken man. Juror John Skiles, for instance, had a similar reaction to the violence of the crime as pretty much everyone. Whoever committed this crime was a frightening, violent person. As a juror, you know, you start you know, and, and to be honest with you, I, I can still, this day, I can visualize those photos. I, I, their visions I'll never get out of my head because uh, they're just stuck there. And uh, But I think when you start, you know, seeing seeing that, you know, the photos, the crime scene video, all this, you know, and then the evidence that the prosecution did present, and then you're putting a face with it, you know, and you're just like, okay, this, you know, this is somebody that had some some really, really major, <laughs> uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anger issues or something, you know? Um, because I mean, for, for the, someone to, to do that kind of violence, I mean. If the jurors heard Ronald speak at length on the stand, would it have been harder to envision him as that kind of person? I don't know if, I think he would have been smart. I, I really do, I do. But I, I could be wrong. I'm mixed on that, I don't know. Yeah, 
I, I, I'm not saying that a prosecutor couldn't entangle him into stuff. I must say I feel the same conflict. Getting to know Ronald through people who knew him in preparing this podcast was a significant factor in the story to me. Everything I learned about Ronald, every casual story told by people who knew him, painted him as a goofy, charming rascal, not a lurking killer of teenagers. Knowing him personally takes him from a name, a photo, to a flesh and blood person with charms and flaws and relatable aspects of his personality. It might have affected a jury similarly. But all that being said, I also saw repeated instances where Ronald had a tendency to talk himself into trouble. Ronald initially saying he'd never been in the laundry room before changing his story definitely continued to hurt him in the third trial. Yeah, and I think I think that was one. Now that my mind's going back to there, and yeah, because I, I I felt like that was very suspicious. That you know, okay, you don't remember if you've ever been in the laundry room or not. I mean, you know, so that would that definitely made you take you know set back and take pause. Ronald would not testify in the third trial, and thus would not have to face cross examination by Alan Levy, one of the prosecutors on the case. Alan, everyone seems to agree was a formidable lawyer. From the state standpoint, Alan Levy, to this day, I think is one of the best prosecutors I was ever up against. I mean, absolutely uh, just a marvelous guy, mar marvelous prosecutor, lawyer. Uh, never did a day, I mean, he may have done one or two days of defense work, but, <laughs> but his, you know, the rest of his entire career was all in prosecution. And he was just, he was really good at it. And he was always liked the challenge of going up against guys like Alan because, and I tried several, I tried several death penalty cases against Alan. But you know what, it's funny as a lawyer, if you can try your cases against the best, then you don't have to worry about all the, and I, I assume I can say whatever I need here, you don't have to worry about all the chicken shit stuff that sometimes you find prosecutors that don't have any experience doing. Because the good ones know the rules and they know they know how to try their case and they know what not to do, which, which is important from a prosecutor standpoint. When you get baby or rookie prosecutors, sometimes you spend all the time trying to correct what they've done in front of a jury. I object, Your Honor, sustain. Instruct the jury to disregard. Uh, the jury will disregard. You know, that does a lot of good. And then, you know, ask for a mistrial. It just, that's the kind of stuff you have to deal with with less experienced prosecutors. That wasn't the case with Alan. I mean, Alan, he, he knew the, the facts of the case frontwards and backwards. He knew, knew the rules. Uh, and the law. It was just a, it was a pleasure to try a case against him. And I uh, always enjoyed it. I, I was always happy when he was on the other side because I knew he wasn't going to do anything chicken shit. He was going to, he was going to try a clean case and, you know, he would accept, he, he wasn't a, he wasn't a good loser, but he would, he would accept the verdict of the jury if it, if it didn't go his way. And that was always, that's always why I like to try cases against Alan. I mean, you know, uh, just to throw another thing out there, you know, the you've seen the thin blue line, right? So another, uh, when they were talking to Melvin Bruder, who was the uh, writ attorney, he was saying it takes a good prosecutor to convict a guilty person. It takes a great prosecutor to convict an innocent person. See, that's what Alan Levy was. Alan Levy was the great prosecutor. Sharon Wilson was the one that couldn't get it done. She wasn't even good enough to get the conviction. See, <laughs> see Alan Levy's a, a different character. He was the king of the sidebar comments. You probably saw that during reading the transcripts. He plants things in the jury's minds, you know, and the defense will object and it'll be overruled or sustained. 
but we went we used to go watch him he was real popular among his the peers. lawyer his peers so whenever he did a closing argument in a case at least twice Lisa and I would go to watch him work you know and he was he had those skills but we have different opinions on Alan Levy I had a kind of a begrudging respect for him you know I thought that he was good at what he did we tried to find Alan to see if he wanted to participate in this podcast but he's retired and the Texas State Bar Association website does not list any contact information for him I also inquired with the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office and they did not have any contact information for Alan either nobody knows where Alan Levy is today. He fell off the face of the earth. He has no contact with any of his peers. His peers are wondering. Jack Strickland said they were best friends. Uh, he said he can't even, you know, he, it's like he fell off the earth, he said. In his opening statement in the third trial, Alan Levy said, the state will show and the evidence will prove that recent advances in powerful scientific techniques have identified and made capable the identification of an individual with a high degree of specificity. The state will show that semen stains were found on the bedspread next to the 14-year-old semi-nude girl. The state will show and the evidence will prove that this young girl had been sexually assaulted. The state will show and the evidence will prove that the semen found in the vagina of Danielle Lemieux on the bedspread next to her body came from one source, and that source is this defendant, Ronald Tromboli. Now you might notice the language there is a bit strange. Alan says the semen was found inside Danielle on the bedspread. It's a sentence that does not make literal sense. And this is a direct verbatim quote from the trial transcript. Levy, Levy smooth, the semen in the vagina on the bedspread next to Danielle. I know that was, that blew everybody's mind is like, you know, he's laying the groundwork in the vagina on the bedspread next to the body. <laughs> I know it was unbelievable. The issue of sexual assault in this case is one more element of the story that defies a simple explanation. It's clear from Danielle's diaries that she was sexually active. It's also clear from Billy Shumway's testimony in the second trial that no conclusions could be made about the semen donor at that time. But Alan's opening statement indicates it's now an open and shut case. What changed? What changed? And nothing as far as the sexual assault changed. Not a damn thing. No evidence. He just threw that out there. And I've always asked that question. I said, how can prosecutors, they could, they could give an opening statement in the courtroom and be expected to prove, you know, to, to prove out what they're saying. But they don't, they're not held to that standard. They can actually make up whatever story they want to throw out there when they're doing their opening statement. And that's, I found that out. They could do that. It's, it's like they have the power just to throw this story out there, plant seeds in your head that aren't true and not prove, prove up what you're saying in the end. So nothing as far as Danielle's sexual assault changed throughout that whole trial after his opening statement. Nothing from the second trial, nothing changed. This is how Alan concluded his opening statement. And the evidence will show, and the state will prove, that the person that wielded that weapon on the 17th day of June, 1985, was the defendant, Ronald Tromboli. In the third trial, once again, Joanne Lemieux, who had since remarried and was now Joanne Carley, 
was called to testify. As I sat down to read her testimony for the third trial, I assumed it would most likely be a simple repeat of her testimony from the second trial. It was not. Joanne once again testified that she gave Ronald a glass of water to drink, but the specifics around that glass of water seemed to have changed from her testimony in the previous trial. She described the glass as a mug, like a beer mug, quote, with a handle, and she specifically said that the glass which was found sitting on top of her dryer was not the same glass she gave to Ronald Tromboli to drink water from when he came to her house at 2 a.m. And moreover, Joanne testified that John Bradley never touched the glass that she gave Ronald. Given that Joanne was gone at work that entire day afterwards, it seems reasonable to conclude she could not know that. But either way, it was a seemingly damning narrative for Ronald. I was staggered by this change, and I was not the only one. Lee Joyner, one of Ron's attorneys on cross-examination, presented Joanne with her own testimony to the Tarrant County Grand Jury. In Joanne's previous testimony to the Grand Jury, she never described the glass as a beer mug. In fact, she specifically described it as a glass, saying it was a clear glass with a round base with a bubble in the glass at the base. Pressed on cross-examination by Lee Joyner, Joanne said on the stand there was a discrepancy between her previous description of the glass and her description in the third trial. The state, the defense didn't know anything about a mug with his fingerprints on it. And again, we have nothing to verify it. We have, we can't hire our own independent expert to look at the fingerprint because they don't have it. They don't have, they don't have it. So it's them just throwing stuff out there and seeing if it sticks to the wall. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Cause I guess they, like Mark was saying, it's just- Yeah, they, they wanted to use the mug to show that he was in there after she left. You yes. know, that she that he touched another glass. glass or mug when he was up there killing the kids, which they could never that's where the mug came from. Right. But they I never could to, I remember that entire testimony and it was hard to listen to her and I don't know why I even watched many times in that third trial when Joanne was up. I would watch her when the question was being answered and I watch where she was looking right so i'm watching her and i'd look and she's looking right at gil so then a few times so then there were certain questions when they got answered i'd go to look over at gil he's not looking at me he's looking at her and he's shaking his head like like this he's going lisa's referring to bob gill the other prosecutor this issue of the glass was not the only seeming change in Joanne's testimony. Multiple changes in her testimony specifically seemed to counter potential defenses to her previous testimony. If there was a different glass, that omitted the logical conclusion that John Bradley simply also used the same glass Ronald used and placed it in the laundry room. If Ronald had previously been in the house, maybe, as he said previously in his amended statement, he had at some point toured the house and been in the laundry room. But in the third trial, Joanne testified that Ronald Tromboli had never, as in not once, been inside her home before his 2 a.m. visit. The phrasing of the question was notable. Bob Gill asked, had Ronald Tromboli, to your knowledge, ever been inside your house before he made his two o'clock a.m. visit that night? Joanne replied, not to my knowledge, no sir. But wait a second, weren't Ronald's stepdaughter Hope and Joanne's daughter Renee best friends? Not just best friends, but best friends who lived just down the street from each other. In fact, on cross-examination by Lee Joyner, 
Joanne admitted that she suggested Ronald Tromboli and his family move to Miguel Lane because it was a nice neighborhood and that the kids could be together. Joanne had known the family when they previously lived in an apartment complex, the same apartment complex she lived at. In her previous testimony, she specifically suggested the move because Hope and Renee were best friends. Joanne was also asked, is it true that the girls, meaning Hope and Renee, were constantly back and forth between the houses? She replied, yes. Renee would call Hope with a wake-up code so that they could go to school together. In fact, Hope had slept over at Joanne's house on the 15th, Saturday, prior to the murders. You know, when she left the apartments and moved to Miguel Lane and talked to D.C. about moving over, you know, so they could keep Hope and Renee together, she gave D.C. and Ron a tour of their duplex <laughs> before they even rented the one down the street. And he'd been up there a couple of times to pick up Hope. And one of the guys, one of the friends of the girls, David Robertson, who lived just around the block on the next block, his dad told investigators that he met Ron Tromboli coming out of the back door of that duplex. A few weeks before the Weeks before the murders. He was probably down there picking up hope. But then the state, Sharon Wilson and Gill, cornered Lee Joyner and told him to stay the fuck away from our witness. Obviously, we were not able to independently verify this encounter. Is it possible Ronald had never, not once, stepped foot in Joanne's house? Certainly, it's possible. But it was also very clear that the two families were entwined because of the close friendship of their daughters. So even if you say, okay, maybe Ronald somehow never came over, not once, even then, the implication of the questioning, that it was some strange thing for Ron to come to Joanne's house, does not fit with how much contact the two families, by any objective measure, including Joanne's own testimony, had. We reached out to Joanne and she declined to participate in this podcast. Dr. Pirwani testified again, and his testimony was largely a repeat of the second trial. Curiously, despite Alan Levy's strong opening statement on the matter, when the rape kit performed on Danielle was brought up, it wasn't discussed in detail. Alan Levy asks if the rape kit was done, Dr. Pirwani says it was, and apart from some squabbling around chain of custody of swabs and blood drawn, which was overruled by the judge, Dr. Pirwani was not heavily questioned on this subject, either by Alan Levy or Bill Lane. But in Detective Ford's police report, dated June 18th, 1985, he recounts a phone call with Dr. Pirwani, where Dr. Pirwani told him, after completing the autopsies, there was no physical evidence of a sexual assault concerning victim Danielle. However, it is possible due to the fact that her panties and shorts had been cut off of her by the suspect. Dr. Pirwani also noted to Detective Ford, per Ford's report, that Danielle was sexually active. So according to Dr. Pirwani, there was no physical evidence of a sexual assault. But according to Alan Levy's opening statement, Danielle had been sexually assaulted, specifically by Ronald. What's really going on here? And how could the state feel the DNA evidence conclusively identifies Ronald, but Bill Lane feels it actually exonerates Ronald? Remember where we started, with life codes claiming these incredible numbers, how it was so extraordinarily unlikely they could be wrong? Well, their record in DNA testing was not impeccable. The third trial of Ronald Tromboli started in March of 1989. In May of 1989, the New York Times would report that four expert witnesses in a double murder trial would collectively issue a statement saying LifeCode's DNA data was not scientifically reliable. In that case, 
Life Code said the odds of a coincidental match were 100 million to one. In the next episode, Ronald is convicted of this crime. Ronald's daughter, Lisa, has always wondered, what was the thing that pushed the jury over the edge? Why was Ronald convicted this time when he wasn't in the second trial? And if the jury knew everything about the story, would that have changed anything? We asked juror John Skiles. You'll hear his answer in the next episode. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Binnemore. Lead reported and written by Dan Binnemore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Derlis Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.